So why don't you grab your Bible, turn there, Daniel chapter 7, for today's study. Wednesday night, we'll look at the whole chapter uh, and kind of do a deep dive. And, and uh, it's one of the great prophecies of the Bible, and we're going to look at that. Um, but what's interesting is um, we have a prophecy that um, it's sort of a repeat of something else we've already seen. Uh, but there's, there's something that we need to gain, um, and that is uh, kind of a perspective. So we'll do that, Lord willing, uh, this service. In 1943, France... Uh, there they were huddled, men, women, children with their luggage, there at the train station. As the train was coming, belching out its black smoke, um, there with the soldiers in their grim uniforms, the SS, which was the sort of the Nazi, the, the, the feared uh, wing of the Nazi army uh, surrounding these travelers. And where were they going? What was the deal? Well, um, not everybody really knew what was going on. The people were shivering there on the platform, waiting to be loaded, um, but they were not criminals. They were just Jews. They were Jews who lived in France. And, um, and they, they'd been hauled out of their houses. Uh, they, they were given a, a second to pack a small bag, and, and then they were hauled out of their houses by the occupying soldiers there in France. Uh, and, and meanwhile, the non-Jewish French were watching their neighbors and some of their friends being gathered up and taken away. And, you know, in retrospect, you kind of think, well, why would they have allowed that? Why would you, like, can you imagine just your neighbors? Like, why are they hauling those people off? What did they do? And it wasn't just, you know, one isolated thing. A lot of people being hauled away. And uh, they, were, they were calling it a relocation, which was kind of interesting. That, well, they're, they're, they must be re relocating them for their own good somehow, but nobody really knew. The non-Jewish French just watched these things with, with increasing concern. You know, can you imagine the watchmaker downtown? You see him go in, and then the little boy that sells newspapers on the street corner, he's part of that group. And the old lady down the street that's known for making quilts, all of these people being rounded up, that's what was going on. How is it that the French non-Jew would just stand by and watch that? Well, as it turns out, there was a, a long-term marketing plan that sort of sold this thing, <clears throat> but it was, it was, the goal was to sort of ease people into it. Um, they didn't you know, say, we wanna kill six million Jews. That wasn't the way they marketed it. They said, we need to help these people. We need to relocate these people. In fact, um, you know, they started with passenger trains there in 1943 as they loaded up these Jews on passenger trains, but eventually they ended up being cattle cars, hauling them out by the thousands. But, but the French just kind of watched it, and we might be critical of that, <clears throat> but how did they believe that they were, it was for the Jews' own good? How did they believe that? Well, one of the marketing strategies was the sloganeering of the German Nazi uh, Third Reich. And what they did is painted neatly on the side of these train uh, cars, um, painted in French on the door of every boxcar was the reassuring logo, Charitable Transport Company. That's what it was marketed as, Charitable Transport Company. And so they thought, well, must be okay. The Nazis also used buses, by the way, and they were marked Charitable Ambulance. The Jews started to know them, and they called them the gray buses because those were the buses that came and picked up Jews and brought them to the death camps where they gassed and killed six million Jews. The reason this is of concern, you know, if there's one thing we've learned from history is we've learned nothing from history. That's the one thing for sure we've learned. Um, and, and, and what I'm concerned about is, you know, Satan is working the same as he did back then where he likes to market and, and sloganize and sort of sell things that are horrifying. And the world has bought into these things for centuries, for millennia. Hook, line, and sinker, man. We get into this stuff and we, we're sold a bill of goods only to be horrified by the destruction that is following. But I believe even as that Nazi Third Reich horror happened, I think that right now we're getting a lot of messaging that Satan is behind and it's basically marking things that are horribly evil and the world is trying to call it good, calling it righteousness and goodness. Meanwhile, Satan's behind it. Take media, for example, TV, internet, YouTube, um, all the stuff that we watch and blogs and podcasts and all this stuff. You know, how could something so entertaining be so dangerous? 
Um, though it seems harmless, the stuff we're watching and seeing, um, even it might be seemingly good in some cases, but it really pre- presents a value system that is totally contrary and undermines the sanctity of marriage. It undermines things like family, morality, the church, respect for life, Christianity, the gospel of Jesus, pastors. When was the last time you saw a movie or TV series where the pastor was actually cool? Not that I care about cool pastors, but have you noticed the wor- they're the worst people in the whole movie. Always the pastor's the one who's you know, getting money under the table. The pastor's the one that's, you, you Pride and Prejudice fans, you ladies that love that, shame on you. <laughs> one word, Collins. The dweebiest pastor in the history of the world. Um, what, what is this? You know, churches, Christians, it's marketed today to make, make the, the Christian look like a complete idiot. Check their brains in. They're the, they're the non-thinker, you know, non-science people. But it's really tragic because a lot of people are buying into that and that's shaped the worldview. We market things. How could, you, how could you not support Black Lives Matter? Of course, Black Lives Matter. Like that's so ridiculously true, Black Lives Matter. Who would ever go against that? Me, I'll tell you why. Because of course Black Lives Matter, but what does Black Lives Matter really stand for? We've gone over this. And, and I remember when the churches were posting their Black Lives Matter, Blackout Tuesday, and, and all these people jumped on board. But of course, Black, and everybody making sure that they were, uh, you know, um, making sure everybody knew that they, they had uh, concern about racism and stuff. But that wasn't what was behind the marketing. The Black Lives Matter, if you went to their website, and they've taken a few of these things off now, but I showed you when it was still on, they said, we want to uh, you know, take apart, dismantle the nuclear family, the man, the woman, the kids, the, the unit we know as the, the family, we wanna dismantle that. We also are Marxist, they, they were proud Marxist. And they were also extreme in their views, pro LGBTQ, uh, A, B, C, D, E, F, G. Um, they were extremely pro all of that, which again, if you signed on to Black Lives Matter, yay, then you were also signing on to all that stuff. Why? Because it was a marketing. It was a strategy to get, strategy, tragedy that was a strategy that got you guys, some of you, sucked in. Did you get sucked in? Now I know, uh, now it's not cool anymore. Even, even our African-American community is kind of saying, yeah, they were, when, when the lady that started Black Lives Matter bought like three mansions with the money that was given, they were kind of like, yeah, we're pretty sure that's a pretty corrupt organization. And it's lost a lot of steam, by the way, uh, because of the corruption. But, but should we have, as Christians, have spotted that a lot earlier? Because it, it, to me, it's tragic that churches just jumped right in. A lot of them. We need to be careful because the marketing of evil is something that is happening. And man, it makes the Nazis during the Holocaust look like child's play. The stuff that they're getting away with. Oh, Brett, what could be worse? Six million Jews. Are you trying to compare Black Lives Matter with the Holocaust? Nope, but I will compare this one. And before you walk out offended, just hear me out, please. Planned Parenthood is worse than the Nazis. Oh, Brett, that, everybody just blames Nazis. When, when, this, this is what I always like to ask when somebody says, you know, this guy's a Nazi. My question is, have, have they killed six million people? Because that's, that's a good comparison. Like if, if you're gonna call our president a Nazi, you don't know what you're talking because our president has not killed six million people. Um, so you can't call him a Nazi that way or Hitler or whatever. Planned Parenthood, since Roe versus Wade was approved, Planned Parenthood, Uh, has been a part of all these abortions, 63 million aborted babies since 1973 when Roe v. Wade was passed. Oh, no, 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 Brett. They love women. They care about women's health. You've got it all wrong. Abortion's something they do, and it's off on the side. But no, 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 they care all about women. No, they do not. You have been sold a bill of goods. And and you know what? Planned Parenthood hasn't even been very good at covering up the the grotesque, sinister stuff they're doing. Do you know that there are hundreds of videos that were undercover videos of of things happening at Planned Parenthood that were just corrupt? One of the ones I remember probably the most profound to see was this one from five years ago. I know it's an older one, but you can find, look, Google it. You can find, you know, undercover videos, Planned Parenthood. They're, They're all over the place. 
But this was the president of Planned Parenthood Medical Directors Council, Dr. Mary Gatter. And she was um, being filmed without her knowledge um, uh, at a restaurant where she was having her salad and her wine. And they were talking about um, procuring, buying um, tissue from aborted situations from Planned Parenthood. And, and this, this uh, the undercover two people, a man and a woman, um, posing as uh, scientists or whatever, they said, we'd like to buy fetal tissue, but we don't want little pieces that are, you know, we, we want the, the full specimen, uh, which is their kind of clinical way of saying they wanted to have a full baby and they wanted to buy these aborted babies, but not in pieces. Uh, the woman wouldn't realize that her baby would kind of suffer differently than the other babies that, uh, and, and it's this horrifying conversation and it wasn't just a nurse there who was doing some black uh, market behind the scenes thing. This is the president. Like this is something that if you, don't, if, you, if you don't see the corruption here, could it be that you have blinders over your eyes? Brad, I brought grandma today and I thought it was gonna be a nice church service. The book of Daniel seemed very safe. And there you go again, ruining church. Man, I, I gotta tell you, this is something that the Bible sees as a total abomination before the Lord. The Bible talks about the, the, the baby within the mother's womb as a life God cares about. And, it, and life, according to the Bible, starts at conception. And what's, what's amazing is science is only catching up to that. And we all realize, oh yeah, it kind of is actually happening that. And, and Texas doing something amazing uh, is still not good enough, but at least they're saying, if there's a heartbeat, you, you can't have an abortion. Um, they're finally figuring that out. Why? Because science is clearly showing us that it's life. Little fingers that they suck their thumb and little toes and fingernails and like at very, very early stages in the mother's womb. And yet these guys are saying, ah, just fetal tissue that you can sell for a hundred bucks. And it's horrifying. I believe that someday, you know, when we get to heaven, we're gonna see judgment at the, the great white throne judgment and people that were slave owners, they're gonna be judged. People that were racist, yep, judged. People that were part of the Holocaust, but I think, I wonder if one of the ugliest things in all of human history will be this very thing, that our nation puts a beautiful package around it and ties it up with a nice big bow and calls it women's rights. You know, caring about women, not, it's, it's my body, I can do whatever we want. And by the way, that's why we as Christians, we don't, we don't say it's your body. We believe, the Bible says, it's a whole nother body inside of yours. And when, when a person, when a couple, a, a boy and a girl have intimacy and they create a life, there's a responsibility for that life. And it's, it's no longer your own, it's someone else's. And that's why the Bible says before you actually become pregnant, before you have sex, sex outside of marriage, which is also called sin, um, uh, before you do that, you should be ready to bring a life into this world. This is the way God created it. This is what his word says, but we are so far from that. We've packaged it. Oh man, kids are gonna have sex, whatever. Why, why do kids run around and just you know, do that uh, when the Bible says no? Well, we, our teachers at school have been teaching us we've evolved from apes. We're just animals. You're no better than the family pet, uh, Junior. So you can run around and have sex with whoever you want. And even though the Bible says no, as humans, we're different. And we've been called to righteousness, but the world has packaged it in such a flashy way. Man, all the movies sell with sex. You know, then they're trying to show you the next movie or the next TV series. They always show the person undressing and like, oh, better put that on my watch list. <laughs> that looks like a good one. Even though it's totally contrary to the light and the beauty of what God originally planned, it's dark, but they package it cool and they sell it and they market it. Marketing of evils, something we're seeing happen all the time. And I believe a lot of these things are just another innocent looking boxcar. When you see the Planned Parenthood building that's all nice and funded, and there's women going in and getting their women's help and encouragement, which by the way, Planned Parenthood does not care about women. I know that for a fact, and, and let me tell you why. Because we pastors and the church and our women's ministry here, we're the ones who have to help the woman 10 years after the abortion. One in three women have had an abortion. That's what the stats say. And, and what Planned Parenthood couldn't care less about is the psychology after the abortion. They'll give you the abortion and encourage you and then they'll send you on your way and you're good to go. But what about the hole that's in the heart of the mother who realizes as she gets older, the horrific thing that has happened? And let me just say this, I gotta say this because like I said, the odds are there's a lot of women here and young men that were encouraging their girlfriend to get an abortion and maybe you're feeling horrible right about now. 
hey, good news. There's no sin and even abortion where God can't forgive. There's only one sin that's unpardonable. That's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, but that's a whole other discussion and that's rejecting God really altogether. But, but actually forgiveness of sin, if, if you go to Christ and say, Lord, I have sinned, good news, the Lord washes your sins away, he forgives you and you're just as if you'd never sinned at all. That's the God we serve. So don't, if you're one who's had an abortion, you shouldn't be feeling like, oh, I, I should just really be bummed and beat myself up. No, just confess and the Lord will just lovingly, as he does all of us for all of our sins, he forgives. That's the good news of the gospel. And man, you can tell your story to other young women that need to hear what abortion really does to your heart. But it's the marketing of evil, just another innocent looking boxcar like those that took millions of Jews to the gas chambers. I think we're, we're seeing all these, um, you know, a repackaging of evil and the sloganeering of the world has become rampant. And, and, and it makes me wonder, what, what things do we look at today, you and I, that we think, oh, that's beautiful, but it's actually before God, totally ugly. Well, that's where we finally get to the book of Daniel. Oh, finally, thanks, Brad. Didn't like that first part. Well, actually what, what the, the, the story here is gonna tell us and show us is something about the way things are marketed or packaged. Um, remember Isaiah chapter five? We went over this a few months ago. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil. That put darkness for light, light for darkness, bitter for sweet, sweet for bitter. Woe unto them. When the Bible says woe unto you, it means you're in big trouble. Woe unto them that are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. Woe unto them that are mighty to drink wine, men of strength to mingle strong drink, which justify the wicked for reward, for money. They're, they're, they're making you know, wickedness look okay for, for monetary gain is the idea there. And take away the righteousness of the righteous from him. The righteous person is being belittled. Have you noticed, by the way, I mentioned pastors on TV shows and movies are always dweebs, but Christians in general, like there's a marketing strategy to basically make people that are of faith, that believe in God, they're the dumbest people in the world. That's what the, the world is feverishly marketing right now. They're trying to push that one. Even though historically, it's been people of faith that have brought us some of the greatest scientific discoveries. Um, some of the smartest people that ever lived on this planet were Christians like Isaac Newton and, and others who I could list. There's a long list of Christian brilliant people who discovered all kinds of scientific things that were believers in Christ. But the world's got a whole different narrative. It's a marketing of evil. Well, that brings us to Daniel chapter seven. And here's why I bring up this sort of topic and it's sort of embedded in here, but not at first glance. In Daniel chapter seven, we begin a, pro a prophecy that Daniel sees in a vision and a dream while he's in bed and, and uh, it troubles him deeply. Let's take a look. Daniel chapter seven, verses three through eight. I told you earlier that this matches, parallels a prophecy that we saw earlier. See if you can remember what that one is as we read. So it says, Daniel sees this vision in verse three, and four great beasts came up from the sea, diverse one from another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I beheld till the wings thereof were plucked and it was lifted up from the earth and made stand upon the feet as a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second like to a bear, and it raised up itself on one side, and it had three ribs in its mouth, in between its teeth of it. And they said thus unto it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I beheld, and lo, another like a leopard, which had upon the back of it four wings of a fowl, and the beast had also four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast dreadful and terrible, strong exceedingly, and it had great iron teeth. It devoured and brake in pieces and stamped the residue with the feet of it, and it was diverse from all the beasts that were before it. It had 10 horns. I considered the horns and behold, there came up among them another little horn before whom there were three of the first horns plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. 
This is a horrifying nightmare. If you think about it, you, you know, some of you are like, oh, I love little animals, that's great. Oh, we got, a, we got a, a lion with wings, oh, how lovely, a lion. Yeah, but read it. The lion had wings, and then it says, but they plucked the wings right off of the, what does it mean to pluck wings? Uh, like a mean little boy playing with a bug. Ripping the wings off of this lion would be a bloody, horrible situation, but that's what happens. Then you got this bear, and the bear is chomping down some beast, and it's got ribs stuck in its teeth, kind of like me and Tad at Famous Dave's. It's, it's not a pretty sight. Um, <laughs> but, but at the same time, you got to understand, this is, this is a bloody situation, these beasts, and there's death. The, the leopard is, is, is pictured as having four heads and four wings. Um, and, and, then, and then the last beast doesn't even have a name, not a lion or a tiger or bear, oh my. It's actually just a beast that doesn't have a name. It's a horrible beast, exceedingly strong, dreadful, and terrible. But it has great iron teeth and it crushed, devoured everything into pieces, the iron teeth of this beast. And then this beast has 10 horns, but grotesquely, one little horn pops out and rips three of the 10 horns out by the roots, not saws it off, but rips it out. Like this is, a, this is a bloody, horrible thing. Brett, this is horrible. Can we move on? Well, do you understand? You have to see this is a horrifying image. That's why in Daniel chapter seven, verse 15, right here in verse 15, it says, I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit in the midst of my body. That means to his core, he was grieved. And the visions of my head troubled me. Um, look at verse uh, 28, hitherto is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my cogitations much troubled me and my countenance changed in me, but I kept the matter in my heart. Does Daniel seem like a snowflake to you? Easily offended or easily troubled by stuff? Well, we've seen Daniel thus far and this guy's not moved by anything. He's calm, cool, collected. Even when they throw him in a lion's den, he's chilling out and he's totally confident in the Lord. This is the first time we see Daniel troubled by something. And what is it that he's troubled by? He's troubled by this vision of these grotesque beasts. Now, does anybody wanna take a stab? What, what is this a parallel prophecy? Which one does it match, the ones that we've already covered? Anybody wanna jump in and say? Yes, the statue of Daniel chapter two, remember that? Nebuchadnezzar dreamed a dream and saw a statue, head of gold, arms of silver, belly of brass, legs of steel, pardon me, iron, feet of iron and clay, 10 toes popping out. And in the time of the kingdoms of those 10 toes, the Bible says, that a stone cut without hands would roll down the mountain and crush that shiny, beautiful statue. And then a, that stone would become a mountain and that mountain would be an everlasting king, kingdom. And Daniel gave that word to Nebuchadnezzar, the guy who dreamed that dream, told him what the dream was, told him what the interpretation was, and it was basically the world's history unfolding before Nebuchadnezzar. But Daniel, here's the thing, this is what you gotta get from this today. Daniel chapter two, the beautiful statue, that's from man's perspective. Daniel chapter seven, the bloody beast with things being ripped off their bodies, that's God's perspective. That's the way God sees the world, the nations of the world. There's a huge difference between man's perspective and God's perspective. Same prophecy. And like I said, we're gonna learn a lot more about this, what's gonna happen from the, because we're gonna talk about the horns. Who's the little horn? What's the little horn? Who are the three ripped out? And who are the four wings and heads? And there's more information given in this one. But this is from God's perspective. And God says, I see your nations, your kingdoms as bloody beasts. You see them as shiny statues, little Oscars that you're holding. Look at us. But the Lord says, my perspective is totally different. And that's what we're supposed to get. We're gonna see this prophecy from God's perspective on Wednesday night, and it's really important. It's good stuff. Perspective is everything. And the problem is, what are the things you and I think are beautiful statues, but really are just bloody beasts? What are the things where you and I have been buying into the world's narrative and its sloganeering and, and its rhetoric to sort of believe that they're, they're just wonderful things, people caring and doing good things, when really the Lord says, no, that's an abomination, and I hate that. Oh, there's so much. I remember when I was a little kid, um, for a long time growing up, I lived in a 24-foot travel trailer. We were not a, a wealthy family. Um, the way my parents got ahead, my dad was a builder, and, um, and we would, you know, at, at the end of the work day, he would come home and try to build a house. We'd get a little piece of property and 
build a house. But we mostly lived in a 24-foot travel trailer. And then once that house was finished, we'd sell and move into a trailer again. And, and so I spent a lot of time in a 24-foot travel trailer. Two, two sisters, mom and dad, five, five people in a 24-foot travel trailer. Um, so when I went to my grandma and grandpa's house in Southern California, it was amazing. My grandpa, he was more of a wealthy guy. He, he, um, he, had, he owned all these uh, auto parts warehouses that were motorcraft, Ford, and he would he, he equip all the Ford dealerships with parts and stuff like that. And um, So we'd go to my grandma's house and grandpa's and their bathroom was bigger than our 24 foot travel trailer. It was amazing. Um, so it was always amazing. Wow, grandma and grandpa's house. We go out to dinner at fancy places. You know, to, to my family, going to Taco Bell once a month was like living large. Um, but, but actually, you know, this was a big deal. Well, I'm, I'll never forget when my grandpa said, kids, we're going on a road trip. And we got into his, he had one of those big fancy station wagons with the little rumble seats in the back. You guys remember the ones, the seats that faced sideways, made you totally car sick when you're in it. You're like watching stuff go by. You're like, this is awesome. And, but anyway, I remember riding back there. I was always the one back there. But we were on our way through the desert and we made our way to Las Vegas. I had never been to Las Vegas but we were gonna visit some of my cousins that lived there, you know, cousins once removed, not very close, but, um, but I'll never forget my grandpa announced, hey, the sun has gone down, we're entering into Las Vegas. And I remember looking out the windows and I saw the millions of beautiful lights. Oh, couldn't believe what I'd, I'd never seen anything like coming from, you know, Applegate, Oregon. Uh, I just had never seen anything like that. And, and it was amazing and I thought, beautiful. And then we went all the way down the strip looking at all these lights and fancy buildings and then we made it to my cousin's house and I don't know what my you know, cousins did for a living but they had a huge mansion. I don't remember the house but as a kid, six years old, I remember the swimming pool. I spent my whole time there. It was a fancy, huge indoor swimming pool and it had an island in the middle of it where there was a table and a barbecue set up and kind of a kitchen in the island. And then a little arch bridge going from the middle of the pool out to the side on the mainland. It was incredible. They had sharks painted on the bottom of the pool. It was so awesome. So then I come back to my 24 foot travel trailer, my mom and dad, and they're like, Brett, what'd you think of your trip? And I said, dad, Las Vegas was the most beautiful city I've ever seen. And my dad said, sit down, son, <laughs> we gotta talk. And I remember my dad trying to articulate to a six-year-old and I didn't get it at the time. What's he talking about? Dad, you've never, you haven't been there. You don't know what you're talking about. It was beautiful. No, it's not beautiful, Brett. And he couldn't really talk about the prostitution and the addiction and gambling and crime and uh, human trafficking and all the ugly stuff that was going on. But he said, Brett, there's a reason they call it Sin City. I was like, really? Sin City. Yep, that's what they call it. And I thought, well, I trust my dad, so I guess he must be right, but it was beautiful. Then I got to be a little older and I started realizing what all that really meant and what Las Vegas really stood for. And I remember thinking, my dad was right. It's amazing how the world can just make things look glamorous. You see the beautiful girls on the red carpet and the galas and the Grammys and all this stuff, but even the world is starting to say, mm, uh, it's kind of gross. Harvey Weinstein sort of brought out a little bit of the truth of what's going on behind the scenes. It's basically prostitution rings with these Hollywood actresses and, and it's just exposing the ugliness of, of the world. All packaged in beautiful gowns and galas. That's why nobody watches the Grammys anymore because people know it's kind of corrupt. This is what Satan is doing. He's repackaging and he's, he's putting spin on what's actually happening in the world. And sadly, it's not just the average worldling that gets sucked into this, it's even some of the church. The church of Jesus Christ is calling good evil and evil good. And, and we need to make some adjustments. And this is probably the best way I can think to make this adjustment. Number one, three things. If you're ready, you can just jot them down in your notes. Number one, we need to realize who the devil really is. You know, if you think the devil is this mean guy with a low voice that talks like this, <laughs> that's not the devil. The devil's slick. The devil, believe it or not, he used to be called Lucifer and he was the most beautiful of all of the creation of God. Do you know that? 
Can the devil pose as an angel of light? Yes, it's 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15 that makes this declaration. And no marvel, in other words, don't be stunned or shocked by this, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers, did you know the devil has ministers? And I thought ministers were only in the church. Nope, there's ministers for the devil. The word minister means servant. And the devil has servants, whether that's demons or fallen angels or people. There are people that actually serve the devil. So it says it's no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness. They look like people that are doing the right thing. And it's, it's an amazing thing how the devil has learned to make things look really good and sensible and caring and loving when it really is an abomination before God. Isn't it amazing how the gay and lesbian group has really stolen the word gay and stolen the rainbow? And now if you're gay, if you're LGBTQ, man, you're rainbows and petunias, man, and you're the, you're the best people. And those Christians are the ones that are hater, bigot, homophobe, and man, they're really good at calling names. But what's amazing is none of that's true. Um, I'm sure there's bigoted, homophobic people out there, but I've, no, I've never met them. The Christians I know are very loving and kind and compassionate. And it's an amazing thing that they've pushed this false narrative to where the world just says, oh yeah, Christians must be homophobic, bigoted uh, people. And that's the narrative, that's the spin. It's the charitable transport company, just another little false narrative while people are being hauled off in the droves to de destruction. Transformed as the ministers of righteousness whose end shall be according to their works. When, when they're done, when it's all said and done, God's gonna judge these so-called ministers that are serving Satan himself. Satan is transformed into an angel of light. I remember in the late 80s, a Christian contemporary music band, there was this, remember thrash metal? There was a thrash metal band, I think it was called Vengeance. You guys remember, anybody remember Vengeance? Anybody? No, none of you guys? Um, yeah, it was a band back in the 80s. Um, <laughs> but it was, the reason you don't remember, because it was like headbanger, like, and the guy, man, when he sang, it was like, <laughs> it was like, you're like, uh, man, that's scary. But um, I remember the, the, the singer of this band singing Christian songs, sounding like that. This interview, it was a Christian TV, I think one of the TV Christian programs that interviewed the lead singer and said, man, you know, what do you say when people say, you sound like Satan? Like, how can you be singing Christian songs and sound like Satan? And the guy, his answer, honestly, I couldn't argue with it. It was brilliant. He said, Satan doesn't sound like me. That's what you think Satan sounds like. Satan sounds like this. It's okay. Do it. You're a good person. He said, that's what Satan sounds like. And I think that's true, man. Satan transforms himself into angel of light. We cartoonize Satan as the guy with the deep guttural voice. <laughs> that's not Satan. That's just cartoons, that's Hollywood. Satan transforms as an angel of light and he's as smooth as silk. And he makes things look really attractive and really, really good while they're really, really horrifying and sinful. That's why 1 Peter, we're told what to do. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober and be vigilant because your adversary, the devil, is as like a roaring lion walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Even though he's smooth as silk, his goal is still the same, to destroy, to devour. So the first thing we have to do is realize who Satan is. He likes to deceive, that's his thing. He's called the deceiver in the Bible. And he likes to package sinful, grotesque things and make them look caring, loving, um, tolerant, and wonderful. That's what he tries to do. And he's been successful, tragically. A lot of the world has been duped by the, you know, the, the deceit of the devil. So what do you do? What's the answer? Number two, resist the devil. That's, that's what we're supposed to do. As Christians, we need to resist the devil. And where do we get that first? Uh, pardon me, James chapter four, verse seven. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, most of you maybe uh, know the second half of that verse. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You know that part. But you can't get that second part until you've actually done the first part. Submit yourself therefore to God. See, it's amazing how people hear what I, I say. I'm always amazed what people come back and say, I can't believe you said this. And then they always say, you said this. And then I like to say, I didn't say that. 
Yes, you did. The good thing is, is everything I do is recorded. We have it all recorded and it's there online for free for all the world to listen and hear what I actually said. But it's amazing how I get misquoted all the time. But like, here's a typical example. Brett said that, you know, um, that homosexuals are horrible people. Well, that's not what I said. I said homosexuality is sin, according to the Bible. And, and you interpreted that, or some people, uh, that I just am a hater and I hate homosexual people. That's not what I said. Um, not even close. But the truth is still God in his word, six times in the Bible, it says very clearly that homosexuality is called sin in the Bible. I'm just telling you what the Bible says. So if you wanna repeat what I say, you can say, well, Brett quoted the Bible about how the Bible says that homosexuality is sinful. So this is where this resisting the devil, the first thing you gotta do is submit to God. Cause you know what? That's a hard thing to say. I don't like calling sin out. Why do you focus on the homosexual question? I'll tell you why that one gets a lot of press because not a lot of the other sins are we arguing that it's all good. You know, most of us um, are not arguing that lying still, it's wonderful, lie to your heart's content. We go, no, that's, that's sinful if you're lying. Yeah, don't do that. Or adultery, even the godless world kind of understands if you're married, probably shouldn't sleep with someone else other than your wife or your husband. Even the world kind of admits that one. Or beat your wife. Yeah, most people, that's not a good thing to do. That's called sin. It's funny how, you know, most sin, we go, yeah, God's right. But somewhere, oh, you know, 20, 30 years ago, the world did a big flip-flop and said, abortion uh, is not sin and homosexuality is not sin, even though the Bible says, yes, it is. To be able to resist the devil, you must first submit to God and just say, if the Bible says it, isn't it amazing the Bible was a really good standard for a couple thousand years? But it's only in the last few years we've just really tossed the Bible out as our compass. Who cares what the Bible says? We're gonna do what we're gonna do. And we've repackaged things that the Bible has called evil and we've marketed it as beautiful, something we should celebrate, uh, even though the Bible says, nope. And what we need to first do is say, whether I like it or not, I'm gonna submit myself to God because he knows what's best for us. He created us. He knows what's sin, he knows what's harmful, and so we're gonna submit ourselves first to God, then what do you do? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil, that's an interesting, I'm, I'm reminded of when I was a kid, you know, Kirk Daly, my next door neighbor, four years older than I was, but we, we were Tom Sawyer, Huck Finn, grew up in the country, living on a little river called the Applegate River. Um, lived in a travel, travel trailer there, but it was by the river. Um, but we'd get up uh, on the mornings, we weren't having to work or buck hay or whatever. We'd get grasshoppers in the field. We had this little box we made and stick grasshoppers in there. And then we'd, we'd go and walk up river because there was this fishing hole about a half a mile, maybe a mile up the river that was awesome. You could just throw the grasshopper on a hook in there and bam, little beautiful rainbow trout right out of the river before the dam was put in. Just beautiful little trout, you know, 11 inch, 12 inch trout. Um, but we would just bring them in, you know, our limit. But here was the tough part of the day. We had to walk up the river and there was a property line with barbed wire fences on both sides where there was a dog. We called this dog Satan. <laughs> Seriously, is Satan home? Is he out? And uh, they called him Nicky, but we knew he was Satan. <laughs> Me and Kirk, and, and we'd live with our fishing pole and our little tackle box and we'd, be, we'd run. You know, we'd hope that Nicky wasn't around Satan and we'd just run. And then it, all of a sudden, rah, 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 it'd come running after us. I think he was one of these chow dogs. You know what a chow? Uh, this was a very ill-tempered dog. And it looked like he wanted to eat you up. And so we, we would slide under the fence, the barbed wire, and just barely miss. And the dog would bark and, and really fierce, you know. Then we'd go fishing and have a nice peaceful. And then we have to go through it all over again coming home. Um, but I'll, I'll never forget when Kirk's dad said, what are you guys doing? He saw us go through this rigmarole, trying to get through the dog thing. And he said, what are you guys doing? You gotta show the dog who's boss. And we're like, yeah, right. Uh, he said, no, here's what you do. You just look at the dog in the eyes and you growl back and you walk forcefully forward toward the dog and bark back at it. We're like, man, you can do that if you want. But uh, it actually took about six months for us to get the guts. I remember the day Kirk and I said, okay, let's do it. So sure enough, we crossed into the fence walking along the river and there comes the dog. And I think I probably hid behind Kirk, but, but Kirk turned and went, Hah! and he started walking toward the dog. I'm not kidding you, true story, this dog rah, 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 stopped, turned around, put its tail between its legs and ran home. 
what a wimpy little dog. We were afraid of that thing. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Put his little pitchfork tail between his legs and run. He doesn't have a pitchfork tail, that's a cartoon. But that's, that's the truth. How do you resist the devil? He will flee from you, that's what the Bible says. There's so many practical ways I think we can do that. I hope you look for practical ways to resist the devil. Because the devil, like I said, he packages things to look beautiful and wonderful. But how do you resist the devil? You, you, you overcome that evil with good. It's, it's, um, you know, it's not just here, but it's in Romans. It's kind of an interesting thing where um, the Bible says, be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, 21. And, and this is how you resist the devil. I remember... Um, seeing somewhat of a, I know this might sound even cliche and maybe even pigeonholing a group of people, but it's just what happened. I was at a lacrosse game, one of my sons, when he was in high school or I think junior high, and he was playing lacrosse and I was, and I was there, you know, and, and I, was, I was watching the game, but I couldn't help but there were these four ladies in these chairs, you know, their, their game chairs sitting there and they weren't watching the lacrosse game at all, um, but they were talking with each other and I was trying to watch the lacrosse, but I couldn't help but hear, you know, one lady, did you hear about Rachel and what she's doing? Oh, what, tell us, do tell. And, well, Rachel, can you believe, and oh, I was just like, wow, this is like a cartoon. I'm watching these, these, these four gals just talk up about Rachel, all this mean, it was like gossipy stuff. And um, I didn't know what to do. Uh, I, I wanted to jump in and say something, but you know, in this era of uh, me being a white male, I couldn't say anything, so I walked away. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, but these ladies were talking. You know what would be great? If, if you were there in that situation, to not be overcome with the evil that's happening there of gossip and talking behind someone's back, what would happen if you were the one that said, uh, you know, they say, did you hear about Rachel? And you say, oh, Rachel, I love Rachel, and she's a friend of mine. You know, speaking of Rachel, let's pray right now for, Brett, they're not Christians that are with us. It doesn't matter. This would be great. Lord, we lift up Rachel to you right now, and we pray blessing upon her. Whatever she's going through, Father, bless her. Help us to be supportive of her. And in Jesus' name, amen. I guarantee those ladies are not going to talk about Rachel anymore. You just shut their mouths because you weren't overcome by the evil, but you overcame evil with good. Guys, you're at work trying to be holy, walking with the Lord, trying to do the right thing. Suddenly, Satan throws that fiery dart, like the Bible calls of lust, in your heart. Whatever it was, something that happened, some advertisement on a picture or something that somebody said or something, but a lustful thought, what are you gonna do? Don't be overcome by that evil, but overcome evil with good. You, you can say, okay, I, I have that fiery dart shot at me, so I'm gonna, while I'm working here, I'm gonna just be praying for four of my buddies who are struggling with addiction to pornography or, or lust, or I'm gonna pray that the Lord keeps their mind stayed upon him. And you just go into prayer. If every time Satan throws the fiery dart at you and you go into just a beautiful expression of praise and prayer to the Lord, that starts to backfire on the enemy. Eventually he's gonna give up and go away because you just resisted the devil and the Bible promises he will flee. Ask Jesus there in Matthew chapter four, who's the ultimate example. Led in the wilderness to be tempted of the devil and three times the devil put a big old temptation in front of Jesus, all of which were real temptations. Each of which Jesus responded by speaking the word of God. He was not overcome by the evil temptation, but he overcame evil with the word of God, which is good. And after the third attempt, you know, bow down and worship me, I'll give you all the kings of the world. Jesus spoke that word, the scripture, it is written. Three times he said that. Um, but it says, then the devil left him and the angels came and ministered to him. Resist the devil and he will flee. That's, that's what happened to Jesus and that's what will happen with us. Resist the devil. But here's the thing you need to know, and this is our third and final point, And that is simply this, recognize where our strength really comes from. Um, you can't resist the devil because you're awesome. Don't be one of those weirdos that go around, I bind Satan. No, forget that. That's, that's dumb. You don't do nothing. Um, remember Michael, the archangel in the book of Jude? Even Michael, he's the one who's gonna thump on Satan ultimately, if you know your Bible. Michael, the archangel, is gonna tie up and bind up Satan ultimately. The Bible tells us that. But even he doesn't say, I bind you. He doesn't do that. He doesn't say that. He's not a weirdo. But what does he do? He says, the Lord rebuke thee, Satan. That's what Michael, the archangel, says to Satan in Jude 
in the book, there's only one chapter in Jude, so we don't give you chapters. But there in Jude, the Lord rebuked thee, Satan. And, and I think that's an interesting thing. If Michael's not doing that, what are we supposed to do? Is it our power where we come and bind Satan? No. Um, I love this. It's 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Um, you are of God, little children, and have overcome them because, here it is, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. It's Christ in you that gives you power to resist Satan. It's Christ. It, it's, it's almost like you can growl and bark or whatever you want at Satan, but that's not going to do anything. It's when you turn and resist Satan and Satan goes, oh, Jesus is there in that person. He has to flee. He will flee because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. So you have to recognize from where your strength really comes from. It comes from Jesus and it, and it comes from knowing the Lord. You know, man without God is in a real dangerous, vulnerable position. If you're not a Christian, you gotta understand you're easily duped. I don't like being called gullible Brett, but if you don't have Christ, there's a good chance your worldview and your ideology is wrong. Well, Brett, how do you know your ideology is right? I'll tell you, um, my ideology is totally messed up apart from Jesus Christ. Many of you, when you became a Christian, many of you did a 180. You changed your thinking about a lot of stuff. And it's because it's a miraculous change that happens to the person who finally submits themselves to God and is saved by the cross of Jesus Christ. And then the Lord just does this work where you realize, man, I've been blinded. I thought Planned Parenthood was a loving, wonderful, caring women's organization. But when you become a Christian, you realize this is one of the most dastardly organizations out there. What happens? It's, it's a spiritual sort of taking off the blinders of your eyes. There's a New Testament example, and I end with this. There was a dude named Saul who hated Christians and hated Jesus. And he went around in the New Testament book of Acts persecuting and breathing out murderings and railings against the Christian church. And he was a Pharisee. He was a guy that was schooled in Judaism, but he hated Christianity. Um, he sat under the teachings of a guy named Gamaliel, which was the Albert Einstein of the day. And he was a sharp intellectual, this guy, Saul. Well, Saul was on his way, Book of Acts, to a place called Damascus in Syria today. But on his way to Damascus, riding his high horse with his posse and his group of people where they're gonna go persecute Christians in Damascus. Suddenly, the Lord knocks Saul off his horse, literally right along, poof, now he's sitting on the ground. And all of a sudden the sky opens up and mm, mm, the Lord just starts shining bright, so bright that Paul goes blind, Saul goes blind. And the, the voice booms from heaven, Saul, why do you persecute me? <laughs> and Saul says, uh, who art thou, Lord? He kind of knew who it was that he had been persecuting. And he says, you're persecuting me, Jesus. You see, Paul's having this personal encounter as a godless sinner who's a persecutor of the church and a hater of Jesus. Suddenly, he encounters Jesus on the road to Damascus. And eventually, Paul realizes he'd been wrong and he just broken there before God. And, and as he says, what do you want me to do? I'm yours. And then, Paul goes back and starts serving Jesus. Did you know it took a long time for the church to really believe Paul was really even saved? They're like, did you hear Saul of Tarsus? He got saved. He's now called Paul. He's called Paul the apostle. The church is like, right. Sure. Good trick. But eventually the church realized not only was Paul going from a Jesus hater, violent, destructive disposition, um, and he later goes now and, and he he instead of breathing murderings and railings and threats against the disciples, he become, becomes one of the greatest lovers of Jesus and lovers of the church of Jesus Christ. It's interesting. At last, he could see evil for evil and good for good. And, and it's interesting because in Paul's situation there, um, when he was given the new name Paul, Acts chapter nine, verse 18, it says, there fell from his eyes something like scales. Paul had these eyes that were covered and he just didn't see that what he was doing was completely evil. He had been sucked in by the, the, the messaging of the world at that time, that Jesus was wacko and that the Christians should die. But once he met Jesus, suddenly he was transformed and changed. And Christ can do the same for you.
He can not only save you like he did Paul the apostle, but Christ can call you out of this world and out of the delusion and the deception of this world, which is evil and the world's calling good. But only if the scales fall from your eyes will you see things right and acknowledge him from the Lord, as, as the Lord. Um, you gotta have a personal encounter of salvation with Christ. And then once you're a Christian, you gotta constantly stay in tune with Jesus Christ because even after you're a Christian, the world's gonna try to hammer away at your worldview and your ideologies. And you gotta not let them be tweaked. Are you getting more information from the world and media and social media and YouTube and TVs and music and movies and all this stuff? Is that what's shaping your worldview? You gotta get back to Jesus to get your, your sight corrected so you're seeing evil for what it is. It really is about focusing on Jesus. When your eyes are focused on Christ, then you're gonna see things rightly. I don't wanna be the kind of person that someday stands before the Lord and the Lord says, man, you were messed up in your thinking. I want the Lord to be able to say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And you saw things rightly because you, you looked to me and you kept your eyes fixed on me. That's the person who's gonna be squared away. We need that today. Evil is all around us and we need to trust that the Lord, he is the one who's faithful. Lord, I pray that you'd help us take the blinders off our eyes. Do a work, Lord, of salvation within us. And, and I pray, first of all, for the unsaved, the person who's got the worldview that is apart from your son, Jesus, Lord. Um, I pray that they'd have a sense somehow of their need to be corrected in their, the way they think. Lord, we wanna have a godly worldview. We wanna follow you and not be duped by this world and its systems. Forgive us where we've been sucked in and we think wrongly, contrary to your word. Help us to submit to you. Help us to resist the devil and, and watch him flee. And I pray that we live our lives with the right thinking and the right mindset. Lord, for the old timer Christian, um, would you restore unto us the joy of our salvation? Give us a fresh eyes on, uh, on what's happening around us in the world and the narratives. May we think biblically, may we think godly. Help us with this, Lord. And we just pray that you'd use this time to just for us to see, like, like you present, the bloody, beastie world that we live in. We look forward to that day when you come and you set up your kingdom. That's gonna be a beautiful kingdom, everlasting kingdom. Give us eyes to see that, we pray. This we ask in Jesus' name, amen, amen. Let's stand together.